Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon. Good, good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dale Anglin, Program Director for Youth and Social Services at the Cleveland Foundation and a proud City Club member. I'm honored today to introduce a friend of mine, today's speaker, Distinguished Professor of Education and Faculty Director for the Center of Transformation of Schools at UCLA's Graduate School of Education and Information Studies, Dr. Pedro Nogueira. This is Dr. Nogueira's second address at the City Club. During the introduction of his first address in January of 2014, it was noted that at the time, the United States had been in perpetual education reform for more than 30 years. Five years later, it can be argued that not much has changed. We're still debating how best to reform public education. However, what has changed is the increased focus on the relationship between income, family structure, housing, and food insecurity, and exposure to violence, all factors which play a significant role in a child's success in school. Dr. Nagara has dedicated his career to studying the ways in which these social and economic conditions, along with demographic trends in local, regional, and global contexts, influence education systems. Dr. Nagara began his career as a classroom teacher in public schools in Providence, Rhode Island, and Oakland before serving as a tenured professor and holder of endowed chairs at New York University, Harvard University, and, and the University of California at Berkeley. From 2003 to 2016, he also served as executive director of the Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools, and was appointed by the governor to serve as a trustee for the State University of New York. As a sociologist, he has published more than 200 articles, monographs, and reports around the topic of school reform, has authored numerous books, and has been the recipient of many prestigious awards, including his election to the National Academy of Education in 2014. Dr. Nagara received his bachelor's degree in sociology and history and a master's degree in sociology from Brown University. He earned his doctorate in sociology from the University of California at Berkeley, one of my alma maters. I have known Dr. Nagara for almost 10 years as he helped my former foundation implement an education reform project in Newark, New Jersey. He not only brings deep knowledge of the field, but also a commitment to working with a wide range of stakeholders, including students, families, and residents to bring about change in schools and neighborhoods. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to the stage Dr. Pedro Nagara. Good afternoon. It's a real pleasure to be here. I want to, first of all, thank the City Club for inviting me back. Um, and when Dan was briefing me on all the distinguished speakers that have come over the, not just the year, but of the years, 
Um, it's just an honor to have a second time to come back. So uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I'm particularly uh, inspired by the motto of helping democracy thrive. I do think sharing ideas, even ideas that we don't like, <laughs> uh, is important to democracy. So I'm happy to be part of that tradition. Uh, I'm also happy to see Dale and have her introduce me because we were working together in Newark. And I wish we could say we fixed Newark. <laughs> um, but that's a story in itself. Um, why so often, even despite the best of our efforts and, and with resources, we are not as successful as we might hope to be. Uh, the lesson is important because we need to learn <laughs> from our mistakes. Uh, <clears throat> I'll talk a little bit about that, but not so much. Uh, I, I do want to say, and I want to start with a question to you, uh, because a number of people say, you know, Cleveland's a great city. So my question to you is, is can Cleveland be a great city without great schools? Yeah. <laughs> that was a quick answer. <laughs> uh, I would say, I would ask that question just about any city in the United States, though, okay? Because it's not just a Cleveland issue. But I would say that in many of our cities, the state of our schools has become disconnected to the way we think about the city. We're much more concerned about the Cavs and the Browns and the Indians than we are about the children, which is really a bad reflection on the city. Right? Uh, and uh, you know, I can think of so many bad sports teams that uh, are able to leverage public funds for a new stadium uh, while the schools are in, in shambles. Uh, and, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that increasingly across the country, the wealthy have their children in private schools, and it's really the poor who have no other option who are in our public schools. And until we fix that, until we can find a way to make it such that it doesn't matter who you are, or where you live, your child has a right to a good education, this country's in trouble. So let me start with another question. And the question that's uh, really at the heart of a lot of my work, and, and it's whether or not education can serve as a means and a resource to solve inequality uh, and, and address some of the huge challenges not only facing this society, but facing the world today. Now, the answer to that, I believe, is yes, it can, but not as it presently is uh, functioning. In fact, what the evidence shows right now is that our schools reproduce inequality. That is, the strongest predictor for how well a child will do in school is how much money the family earns. When you combine how much money the family earns with the education of the parents, particularly the mom, because usually the mother's the first teacher, you can predict with great consistency how well kids will do. And that should disturb all of us, because we know there are lots of kids who don't come from families with money and education who have enormous potential. And I'll bet you there are some of them in this room today. How many of you come from a family where neither parent graduated from college? Raise your hand. Okay. So I'm, I'm assuming that you're doing well now. Um, neither of my parents graduated from high school, and they managed to send all six of us to college. Right. So we have evidence that education can serve as a pathway to opportunity, can help break the cycle of poverty, but we know that that is the exception, and it's not typically how it works. So how do we change the odds? Well, first, we have to learn from examples where it's happened. And let me start with one. Um, I'm from New York City originally. Uh, lived it part of the time in Brooklyn, an area called Brownsville, part of New York that still hasn't gentrified. <laughs> uh, and I was invited to visit PS28. We have very fancy names for our schools in New York City. 
Public School 28 in Bedford-Stuyvesant. And uh, I'd heard that, I'd seen the article. They got the highest gains in literacy and math in 2012, and the principal said, Pedro, come visit. So I arranged a visit. And when I get there, I'm greeted by her, uh, by the principal and her secretary. She said, let me introduce you to the person who does all the administrative work. Right? She, she's running this school. And I said, well, then what do you do? She said, I'm the lead teacher. She said, I didn't become a principal to escape the classroom. And then she said, let's go visit some classrooms. And we go into classrooms, and every classroom I go into has five, in some cases, six adults. So I said, where do you get all these teachers from? She said, well, they're not all teachers. Most of them are parents that we train to work with our teachers. And I said, well, what do they do? She said, well, they do everything. They copy papers. They, uh, they, they organize books. They escort kids to the bathroom. And there's one parent. She's standing very close to a little boy. I said, what's she doing? She said, she's there to keep him calm. And we're glad he's here. she's here because he has trouble. She says that school has over 50 parents a day who volunteer at the school. And despite the fact that 30% of the kids at the school are homeless, and you would expect a high level of transience because of that, this is a school where 90% of the kids who start in the fall will be there in the spring because even when families have to move, they know they're getting a good thing at that school, so they'll take an extra bus to stay. It's a school that works through a series of partnerships partnership with the YMCA that provides the after-school programs, including swimming lessons and, uh, and help with, 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 with work and arts. They have another partnership with a local hospital that provides health services on-site so kids can get their eyes examined and their teeth fixed if they need to. And they have a, a partnership with the job training agency so that parents who want it can get job training and their GD class. She believes that if the parents are educated and employed, they'll do a better job with their children. She said, let me show you the professional development work going on for, your, for my teachers today. And I go to a room, there are eight teachers and two social workers. And the focus of the workshop is how to respond to the social and emotional needs of children. And teachers are posing questions. How do I deal with a child who's aggressive? How do I deal with a child who is anxious? A child who is uh, um, having uh, depression? And one, one teacher says, I have a child with uh, attachment issues. And he's attached to my leg and I can't teach. And in every case, they offer very concrete, practical suggestions. Try this. We'll come and observe. We'll give you feedback. You know, and I asked the principal, why are you offering this as a form of professional development for teachers? She said, because until I did, they're referring too many kids to special education. I already have over half, a quarter of my kids in special ed. She said, my teachers have to be more skilled to work here. So let me introduce my guidance counselor. We walked down the hall to the guidance counselor, and she said, I have to warn you, because I got him from the rubber room. Okay? Now, those of you who don't know New York City, there's a place in New York City called the rubber room, where they send teachers who've been written up for some infraction. And they can stay there for years, collecting a salary and doing crossword puzzles. I said, how do you know to get this man from the rubber room? She said, well, he had been my counselor when I was in school. And he literally saved my life. So when I heard he was there, I asked if I could have him. They said, you could have him. So I go in there and I meet this gentleman, an older man, and he's there with a little boy. And we talk about the school, and I ask the little boy, why are you here today? He says, I'm here to learn how to be good. I said, is it working? He said, I hope so. He says, I'm tired of being put out of class. And then they explain they have a no suspension policy. I said, no suspension? He said, no suspensions. I said, why? He said, because we don't think it's an effective strategy to send kids home to watch TV to, to address discipline. 
we actually focus on the root of the problem and try to get the kids to be responsible for the behavior. That's our focus of our discipline. So as we're leaving, I say, wow, this is impressive. I'm going to write to the chancellor of schools, who at the time was Joel Klein, and tell him about what you're doing. She said, well, if you're going to contact the chancellor, I have to show you one more thing. She takes me to an office, and in her office, it's there are big tables. I said, what happens here? She said, I'm the lead teacher. So I work with kids that the teachers struggle with. She said, but every student at the school has a learning plan. And we keep samples of their work so we can monitor their performance. Nothing is left to chance. So I do write to the chancellor. And I say, you need to go visit PS28. And to his credit, three days later, he visits. And he's equally impressed. So he writes about it in a memo that he sends, or a newsletter he sends out to every principal in New York City. That's over 1,800 principals. But the only thing he mentions is the data system they were using. Because New York City just spent $100 million on that data system. And he's glad to see someone using it. And I write back, I said, Joel, I'm so glad you visited, but you missed it. Because it's not the data system that makes a school like that work. I start with that story because sometimes, even when it's in our face, we don't get it. We don't get all the ingredients required to create a school that can break the cycle of poverty, which is what we should be after. Schools that know how to motivate and engage kids. Schools where there's high quality instruction where parents are involved. Because those are the things our schools need. We've been fixated on the wrong things. We've been fixated on how to raise test scores. And I'm not against testing kids. I think you have to assess to see if kids have learned. But there's absolutely no evidence that testing kids will make them any smarter. If you don't go back to the teaching and learning, then nothing will change. And that's what we've seen for the last several years in this country, very little change. And that's both a Democrat and Republican problem. Okay, they've both been in on this. And so we have to understand what's at stake. What's at stake is growing inequality in our country right, and in the world. Okay? And that inequality is contributing not only to the homelessness that we see across the country that's rising, it's also in contributing to the desperation and the anger that we see in so many of our communities. Because when people feel shut out, they become desperate. And so we have to figure out how do we begin to address the challenges we face through education, because we really have little else. Right? Thomas Jefferson was right that education is the foundation to a democracy, but our democracy is in trouble. We have kids out there who can't don't know what the Constitution is. Right? We have kids out there don't know who fought in the Civil War. We have, and, and, and consequently, our kids are not able to distinguish between fake news and real news, not engage in civic debate because it's not being dem demonstrated to them, it's not being taught in our schools. And so our democracy is in trouble when education is not serving all children as well. And so I want to encourage you to think and remember there are two purposes to education. One purpose is to prepare kids for the world as we know it to make sure they get the jobs and have the skills they need to go to college and to go to work. But that's just one purpose. The other purpose is to get the knowledge and the ability and the mindset to solve the problems of the previous generation. And we're going to give them a whole lot of problems. Right? Not only is there rising inequality, but we, climate change is real. It's going to be a huge problem they're going to face. We've got all kinds of diseases that uh, continue to appear. We have any number of challenges, if our kids
Do not have the ability to solve problems. Think creatively outside the box. Apply what they've learned to address those problems, then we're all in trouble, and so are they. I always say that those who are getting ready to retire should be the strongest advocates for education. Because your futures depend on those kids. This system of, of, of Social Security that we have is contingent on having kids who can work and to support the elderly. But that's not how we think. We don't recognize that we're actually interdependent. We should be glad immigrants want to come to America. Because in many communities, if it weren't for the immigrants, there would not only be no one to do the most important jobs, including taking care of the elderly, but they were, the schools would be in trouble. And so I would want to argue, what are we doing to nurture that kind of education? Now, I'm looking at the clock, and I see I don't have a whole lot of time. <laughs> so let me go faster. Equity has got to be at the core of what we do. And part of the reason why we keep getting the same results is because we don't get that. So this diagram illustrates, I think in a way that most people get it, that you can't just treat everybody the same because they're not the same. They come to us with different needs, different interests. And if we don't respond to those differences, invariably the kids who have the greatest needs are going to be the kids who continue to fall further behind. And incidentally, those are also the kids we're most likely to punish, right? the kids with the greatest needs. What we don't see in education is there's a reason why certain people always end up ahead, because they started out ahead. Right? I see that with my own children. When I had my first two, I was a graduate student struggling to get by financially. With my youngest, I'm older, and she benefits from that. She's got more, more resources. So when children see my daughter, when other parents see my daughter at the park, they're, they're amazed. Oh, her vocabulary. She can sing every song from Hamilton by heart. She can explain global warming. She was in a debate with some high school kids about the meaning of metaphors and was winning, right? <laughs> She's seven. <laughs> and when, um, you know, as a parent, you're like, wow, isn't, don't you feel good when people compliment you and say your daughter's gifted? I have to remind my wife, you know what her gift is? She has two parents with PhDs. That's the gift, right? That's the gift. Because there are lots of kids out there who come from trailer parks and housing projects and homeless shelters who also have gifts. But unless they're talented athletes, chances are those gifts will never be recognized. Because we love athletics more than we do developing that intellectual ability. So what we've got to do is focus on eliminating the barriers. That's what equity work is about. The barriers that get in the way of us meeting the needs of our students. And sometimes the bar barriers are formidable. Not having a stable place to live is a barrier. Not having two parents, a barrier. But these are not insurmountable. And if we think creatively about how to apply the resources and talent of this city to address the needs of our kids, we could do far better than we are right now. So we have good reason to believe that we can do this. Here's what we know. The World Bank's known this for many years. You want to reduce poverty, educate girls. Right? Educate girls. Now, I've been an advocate for many years to say we've got to focus on the boys, because all the evidence shows boys, especially boys of color, are in real trouble, more likely to be suspended, more likely to, uh, to drop out, more likely to underperform than any other group. But when you educate girls, wow, amazing things happen. Because first of all, as I said earlier, usually the mom's the first teacher, so you benefit their children. Educated women have fewer children and have them later. So you start to reduce teen pregnancy. Right? 
And educated women are better able to earn a living and support their families because, sadly, men, they're more likely to spend their money on their children. Right? So the whole family benefits when you educate women. Again, it's not an argument against educating men, because in fact, if you want to reduce recidivism, educate the men behind bars. Because right? what do our prisons do? Our prisons produce criminals. Because instead of educating people while they're incarcerated, what do we do? We punish. Right? And all the evidence shows that when you provide education, when you make it possible for people to get skills, you reduce the likelihood of them returning to prisons. Someone told me today, you're spending in Ohio $47,000 a year to incarcerate an individual between $10,000 and $11,000 to educate. Far more on incarcerating juveniles. The cost of failure are real. Right? But we don't see that. Right? We have over 5 million adults in this country right now who are structurally disenfranchised, neither working nor in college. They're living on your couch. How many of you know those people, right? Okay. <laughs> This is a burden for the whole society and for those individuals. It's untapped potential. And so we've got to do a better job. We need to focus on how to build capacity in our schools. And I want to say this because I know that Ohio, like many other states, is, is still stuck on, on a path of narrow accountability, where we think that by taking over districts like you've done in East Cleveland and Lorraine, somehow things will get better as if the state knew what to do. Right? Let's watch and see, will these districts get better? At one point in New Jersey, every urban district was under state control. Newark just escaped the state control, not because they got better, but because the state got tired. Right? This is a farce. This is not a way to help address the needs. If we want to see things improve, let's follow the highest performing system in North America, and that system is Toronto where they build capacity in schools. And if a school is having trouble, they don't threaten to fire the principal. They come and say, how can we help? Looks like you need help in math. We're going to send some math coaches in there to work with your math teachers. Because they understand the performance of the kids is a reflection of the strengths of the teachers. And if you don't address those strengths so you have an alignment between the skills of the staff and the needs of the kids, nothing will change. So we've got to learn from success. And we have enough examples out there to learn from. And always, those examples start with knowing the children. Right? Do you know the children? Do you know how they learn? Do you know what their interests are? Do you know what challenges they face? It sounds so basic, but in so many schools, I would say, we don't even know who these kids are. And because we don't, we see them through deficits. Right? do the things they can't do, and totally miss out on the things they can do. There's a, a, a community in, in Florida, Belle Glade, just outside of West Palm Beach. It's dirt poor, but it's produced more professional football players than any community in this country for the last 20 years. Some say it's because the grass is so high and you've got to run fast. Right? <laughs> I say it's because we love football. If we loved education as much, we could get accountants and lawyers and, and doctors from Belle Glade too. When we have a focus on developing talents in communities, we can do things like Brockton. Brockton, Massachusetts, is the, has the largest high school in the state with over 4,200 kids. It is a low-income community with all the problems you see 
in, in, typical to any urban area. Crime, violence, homelessness, it's a top performing school. One of the top performing schools in the state. But it, always, it wasn't always so. Right? At one point, the Boston Globe described it as a cesspool because there have been scandals, and it was projected that when they implemented their high-stakes exams, 75% of the kids would fail because they couldn't pass the exam. So what did they do? They started focusing on literacy, making sure that every teacher was teaching literacy, regardless of the subject. And over a 17-year period, they totally changed this school into one of two urban schools in the state that is now regarded as a top performing school. There was no gimmick. They didn't change the community. They didn't say, well, we got to eliminate poverty first. They said, no, we have to meet the kids where they are. They focused on something very concrete and tangible that's not actually new. Right? Literacy is not a new idea. Getting kids to read is not a new idea. How did we miss that as being important when we think about reforming our schools? Again, when we look at the examples of places that are doing it well, and I get to work with a school like this, Social Justice Humanitas in Los Angeles. High poverty school, it's in the area, just had fires last week. Fourth highest graduation rate in the city of LA. The only high school in the city where the students evaluate their teachers. Okay. I asked the teachers, what's it like to work here? They say, it's great. We work together. I said, I said, what's the challenge? I said, the feedback from the kids, because they don't hold back. And one teacher said she was so insulted, a kid told her that she was disorganized. She said, but she told me the other day I've gotten better. <laughs> Every day in a neighborhood surrounded by gangs, they haven't had a fight in over seven years. The principal, the staff is out there on the sidewalks greeting children, letting the parents know your kids are safe when they're with us because we're watching. I met with a group of the students, and I asked a question. I said, how often are you inspired by what you learn in school? Kids raised their hand and said, every day. I said, I don't believe you. I go to too many schools. I said, what did you learn yesterday? Girl shot up her hand. She said, yesterday, we learned about the forced sterilization of women that was occurring in this country in the 1930s, part of the eugenics. We learned about it first in science. Then it got reinforced in history. And I was so disturbed, I went home and talked about it with my father. And we went online to understand why this happened, where it happened, who was behind it. You know what happens when kids get a good education? They want more education. That's what happens. So if you can do it in Pacoima, if you can do it in Brockton, if you can do it in Bed-Stuy, you could do it in Cleveland. Right? What's holding us back? I often say that I think the biggest problem of all is a lack of will. So in the time remaining, let me describe a school with a lot of will. This is Sapphire Rhodes School in the townships of South Africa outside of Port Elizabeth. And I was invited to visit by this guy, Bruce Dammons, who was the principal at the time. And he said when he got there, the school was in shambles. It was broken windows. They couldn't even get water into the building because the people had stolen the pipes. And he was assigned to be the principal. He's got to figure out what to do. So he decides he's going to throw a party for the community. He calls it a Thanksgiving party. And people come because there's food, there's music. And they said, what are you thanking us for? He said, I'm thanking you for the support you're going to have to provide, because I can't do this by myself. <laughs> she said, OK, I get it. So he says, well, first thing we got to do is got to stop the vandalism. They said, well, we know who's been ripping off the school. It's these guys that are out of work, and they rip off the school. He says, let me meet them. So he goes in and meets them. And he says, look, I need your help. I can't, I can't have you robbing the school. I need you to help me secure the school. So now they have housing at the site, 
because they had a lot of land, and they secured a school. No more vandalism. He said to the parents, he said, what do we do to get the kids to come back? Because kids weren't coming. He said, kids are hungry. Over half the kids were orphans. Parents died from, from HIV. He says, we got to feed them. Then look at all the land we have. Now they have a huge garden. Not only do they have a garden growing vegetables, they, they got chickens, they got goats. They have, not only feeding the school, they're feeding the community. Okay. They have a clinic run by parents. I said, are you trained? They said, no, nobody's trained. I said, what do you do when kids are sick? He said, well, give them a glass of water and tell them to lay down. <laughs> Half the time it works. When it doesn't work, we have to get a real nurse. But they're not waiting for help because help's not coming. They turn to each other. They got social capital. And because they do, now kids are there. And they're thriving. Poverty didn't end, but they have a thriving school. Because poverty's not a learning disability. And over and over again, I kept asking the principal. I said, what makes a school like this work? He says, it's the community. I work for them. He has a parent council. I work for them. And when I was there, they were making to protest the Ministry of Education because teachers hadn't been paid for several uh, months. I said, you're going to protest too? He says, absolutely. I said, why? He says, because I don't want them to think I'm against them. They'll come after me. I want them to know I'm with them. They locked up the last person with the Ministry of Education in the closet for several hours. I said, I'm on their side. Okay? <laughs> I asked the parents, why do so many parents volunteer here? They said, because our kids are here. I said, we weren't doing anything anyway. And now, look at our school. It's thriving. If you can do that in the townships of Port Elizabeth, where the problems are far greater than anywhere here in Cleveland, you can do that here in Cleveland, too. So let me close with this. I get to visit schools all around the world. And what I see over and over again is that when we tap into the agency of our children, of our parents, of our teachers, of our school leaders, when we empower them with clarity about what to do, we can make a huge difference. But it takes trust to do that. You have to trust people that you can believe that with the right guidance, they can actually make good decisions. And over and over, I'm seeing schools that are doing just that. They're not waiting for a superintendent to save them. They're figuring it out on their own. And when that happens, and when kids start to realize that with education, they have the ability to make a difference in their lives, to help their families and help their communities, I see kids making a huge change. Too often, the, the, the message we send to our children is that if you are smart and you do well, you can escape. You get to leave. That assumes the kids want to escape, that they don't love their families. That, and what we completely overlook is the possibility that in that same community are the future leaders, the future doctors and lawyers who can come back to those communities to lift them up. That's what education's got to be focused upon. We've got to develop our communities by developing the human capital in those communities. There's no other way. Right now I'm working, am I out of time already? <laughs> I'm working in New Mexico. I was, I, I was asked in, uh, in January or December by the governor to become secretary of education. And for 24 hours, I really considered it. <laughs> 24 hours. I even took my wife and daughter to say, could we do this? And I realized, no, we can't. <laughs> but they're last in the nation in education. They used to say, thank God for Mississippi, but now they're behind Mississippi. Right? But what's their big issue? Their issue is poverty especially on the reservations. 
Their issue is our, our failed strategy, set of strategies in terms of shaming schools and shutting down schools and blaming teachers. They're making a huge shift. And you might have heard recently the governor announced they're going to make college available to pay for everyone in the state of New Mexico. And now they're going to make the gradual turn towards supporting schools rather than shaming schools. I believe that we can do this all over this country if we start by recognizing that education can be a resource for solving these huge problems if, if we focus on the right things, if we focus on getting kids motivated and engaged, if we focus on getting parents involved and empowering teachers. It's possible and it's within our interest to do so. Thank you. Good afternoon, I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive of the City Club, and today all I want to do is hear more stories from Pedro Nogueira about schools that are succeeding. Pedro Nogueira is the Distinguished Professor of Education and Faculty Director for the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA's Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. We're about to begin the audience Q&A, and we welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, you can tweet it at the City Club, and our team will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are Office and Customer Service Coordinator Tiffany France and Director of Programming Stephanie Jansky. May we have our first question, please? We're going to take our first question from Twitter. Uh, large public schools like Shaker Heights High School, it's difficult to make sure that every student succeeds. How do your ideas affect large schools like this? Well, I, you know, I, I know there's former superintendent here and probably some others from Shaker too, and I know that it's got some coverage in the Washington Post. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to pretend that it's easy. I, I, I don't want to pretend because a big part of what you've got to shift is school culture, right? Um, and you never shift culture quickly. But culture is what influences expectations, relationships. It influences how kids see themselves. Do kids believe it's cool to be smart at the high school? Would be my first question. And if not, what's preventing that? What's preventing kids in some, many of our schools, there are stereotypes that kids start to internalize right, early that limit their ability to be successful academically. So I would look at those things um, but, uh, because I think that's probably, because you know, Shaker has a lot of the ingredients for success. Right? It has resources, it has you know, skillful educators. I would say the, pro the, chance, the challenge probably is in how you shift the culture of that school. So that's where I put my attention. Question from Twitter. How does this reform affect students with mental and physical disabilities? Do they get just as much benefits or more than usual from this? Great question, because we have lots of kids like that. And uh, <clears throat> too often, those are the kids who are not well served. And we have a growing population of kids right now with mental health challenges across the country, including very high achieving kids who are suffering from depression and anxiety. We see suicide rates rising. So we have good reason to be concerned about all kids, but particularly those kids who are so vulnerable. So there's a growing focus now on social and emotional learning, uh, which is a good thing, which is just another way to say we've got to think about the fact that the educational needs of a child are impacted by their emotional and psychological needs too, uh, which, wow, that's what a revelation. <laughs> when we start to think more holistically about kids, then we start to um, address those basic needs. And, and for kids with learning disabilities, for example, we have to make sure they don't feel marginalized and stigmatized. Whenever I visit a school and special ed is referred to as a place, 
I know that's a problem. The best special ed looks like there is no special ed because those kids are totally integrated into the school and their needs are being met. Uh, and there's a focus on the quality of the support they receive. Uh, too often, those kids are set up not to be successful. So I would look at, I would ask, are we evaluating the quality of services we provide to our children with learning disabilities and making sure that the teachers who teach them get the support they need? You touched upon the uh, contributions of immigrants. Uh, could you elaborate on that, and can you also share with us your experience in uh, working with foreign-born kids? Sure. So, as a you know, we often say we're a nation of immigrants, um, and but ironically, hostile to immigrants. This is a, quite a contradiction we're faced with, right? Uh, <laughs> There are schools, there's a network of schools, the International's Network, started in New York City, now spreading to other parts of the country, that is demonstrating, first of all, that not speaking English is not a disability, <laughs> right? Uh, and that if you train the teachers across the content areas, so it's not just in language arts, but in math and science as well, to work with kids who are learning English for the first time, you can significantly improve outcomes. You might need to give those kids more time, because the research shows it takes at least six years to master academic English. Right? The kids will become fluent in, in spoken English often within a year. Right? But understanding academic English and how to engage those texts takes more time. So you would need to make sure we're giving enough time. But these schools in this network, and you can look them up, are demonstrating you can get great outcomes if you provide the proper support. Kids who are bilingual and trilingual actually have huge advantage over kids who are monolingual. They already come to us speaking one language. Sometimes they come to us speaking many languages. I was in San Diego and I was on a panel with a superintendent uh, with a group of kids and one kid said, you know, she was from Vietnam. She said she was struggling because she had to pass the language requirement, which only could be met in Spanish or French. She said, I wish the school would recognize the five other languages I speak. Right? And I turned to the superintendent and said, maybe you should, right? And she said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Our kids, again, when you see children through the lens of a deficit, not speaking English as a disability, then you're missing out on all those strengths. And that's what we have to flip if we're going to be more successful working with our immigrant students. We also have to recognize that many of these kids, especially right now, are coming without intact families. Right? And sometimes they're living with relatives or, or sometimes in very uh, precarious situations. Uh, I was visiting, working in a school in LA, and LA is no model for urban education. We have some of the largest class size in the country. I'm in a ninth grade classroom, 40 kids in the classroom, inexperienced teacher. And he's supposed to be teaching uh, language arts. And the kids are barely listening and moving all around the room. And I turned to him and said, what are you doing? He says, I'm trying to teach him English. And I said, well, it's not working, is it? He said, no. I said, well, what do you know about these kids? He says, I know they don't speak English. I said, well, what else do you know? He said, that's all I know. I said, do you know that most of these kids were unaccompanied minors? That meant they crossed the border, in some cases, two and three borders to get here. I said, do you think you could have done that? He said, no. I said, I don't think I could have done it. I tried to cross the border legally, and I had trouble, OK? <laughs> so these are incredibly resilient people you're teaching. They are smart. They are savvy. You are teaching brilliant people. He said, really? I said, they are brilliant. He said, wow, I had no idea. No one told me. Sometimes we don't see it. And therefore, we treat kids like they're dumb. Did you ever have that experience of someone talking to you like you're dumb? Yeah. Well, it happens to our students a lot. Sorry. Okay. In larger public schools, how would you recommend to close the achievement gap? 
again, I don't want to <laughs> pretend I'm the magician who can just, just do that, boom. Uh, it's complex, right? And uh, one of the things I didn't do, I, I scrolled through the slides <laughs> very quickly, but we have good research on what we should focus on. Here's what the research shows we should focus on, right? making sure there's a coherent plan to deliver instruction. So teachers are clear about what to teach, how to teach it, what to do when kids don't learn so they can intervene. They're planning together. That's how you get coherence. We're building the skills of our teachers because our teachers don't come into the profession as master teachers. They come in as novices. But education is one of the few fields where we'll take the novice and give them the most difficult job. We've got to stop that. Third, it says we've got to focus on the parents and the community because parents influence student outcomes. And if you don't build partnerships with parents that are rooted in trust and respect, it's very hard to change outcomes for kids. Fourth, we've got to focus on the culture of the schools. Beliefs, expectations, relationships, and fifth, leadership. I would say if you focus on those five things over time, you will see outcomes improve. If you get everybody on the page, same page doing that work, and that's what the evidence shows. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, you, you, um, you talk about parent involvement a lot. <laughs> um, I taught 40 years, and, and it's really challenging. And one of the challenging things is the mindset of sometimes a number of teachers uh, when you have your implicit biases, uh, there's a problem with cultural competence and really being able to appreciate uh, the students in front of you. So my question is, how important is professional development in things like implicit bias and cultural competence in order to get uh, educators, everybody in the building, to be able to not only relate to the students, but to relate to their families? So I'm glad you paired the two together, um, parent involvement and implicit bias, because too often what I see districts doing is they try to address implicit bias in a vacuum. I've never seen that work anywhere. Right? If you connect it to something like how to build relationships with kids, how to teach the material, how to build relationships with parents, that makes a big difference. But then it has to be very concrete. Uh, so I've seen schools, for example, they'll do um, a, a role play where they have a real parent come in with a teacher, and let's, let's talk through, what do I deal with, how do I talk to a parent about a child who's not doing well? Right? And when that parent over, that parent knows I'm on your side, and we gotta work together to support that child, so that we form a real partnership rooted in trust. It's gotta start from the assumption that parents want good things to happen to their children, and so do we. Right? And it's also gotta start from the recognition that parents know things about their kids that could help us. One of my uh, former uh, students is a teacher in Chicago, who are on strike now, and, and he often started his parent-teacher conference, said, what do you, you know more about your child than I do. What can you tell me to help me to be a better teacher for your child? It starts to acknowledge and recognize the value of the parent. So when we, start, when we approach it that way, things start to change. Now, I also want to acknowledge many parents have had bad experiences in school. So they come with fear, with resentment. Sometimes it's the same teachers they had that are there. Right? So there's a reason for the, 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 the um, attitude sometimes. But that can be changed too. Once they see, oh, you're, you're inviting me in. You see me as a partner, not as a problem. Uh, and, and so you're, uh, you have to make a choice. Will your parents be a problem or a partner? Right? And if you say we're committed to making them a partner, then you start to approach the school, the parents, the way that, that principal in South Africa did, reaching out.
Hello, Dr. Nagara. Um, how do you feel state mandated tests play um, as far as um, the learning environment with so many tests being required for our students? Many teachers find themselves just teaching to the test, yeah. but not really being able to teach. Do you feel that they present a barrier to the learning environment? And then do you also feel that they are still culturally biased? So let me, let me say this. I think assessment is important. We have to assess to know how well kids are doing. The, the issue is how frequently to assess, right? I think sometimes it's gone way too out, like we're testing all the time, so then it becomes a little more than test preparation. Um, and then what do we do with the results? If we're using the results to rank kids or to judge teachers, that's not an effective use of an assessment. If we're using it to figure out what do kids need more of and then making sure they get it, that's a correct use of assessment. That's how we, ideally, it works in special education. We do assessments to figure out how to support a child and what the learning needs are. So there's a place for, for assessments, standardized assessment, because we do have to be able to compare but the question is, how are we using it? And if we're using it as a tool to guide learning, that makes a lot of sense. If we're using it simply to rank kids and schools, it doesn't make much sense at all. And I, I, I see no state that's done it that way that's gotten better. A related question, what do you think of the College Board's short-lived effort to <laughs> add an adversity score uh, with the SAT? I, I you know, I. They're, they're in trouble, uh, right? So they're desperate um, uh, over there at the College Board because a growing number of states are starting to question whether or not we should use the SAT. A number of colleges are no longer saying we're going to use the SAT as the primary criteria for determining admissions. So I think they were trying to acknowledge the inequities, right? But they've got to go, go far beyond that. I do think cultural bias is an issue on the SAT. Uh, ACT is a little bit better in that regard than the SAT. Uh, but I think um, it, that doesn't go nearly far enough. The inequities, you know, and this cheating scandal has exposed a lot of this. Um, you know, you have not only, do you, there was a study that came out, affluent kids more likely to get extended learn time on the test. Right? Why? Because suddenly when it's time to take the SAT, they have a learning disability that requires unlimited time. Right? A lot of parents don't even know that that's even an option, but you actually have to know a doctor who will write a note to say you need that extended time. Affluent kids more likely to get the test prep. To, um, uh, to boost their scores, and it makes a difference. So uh, again, I don't know, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say let's get rid of it altogether. I would say we need to be really thoughtful about how these assessments are used, really check for, and, and they should have, a, I think, a broader number of people looking at the, the questions themselves. I do think very often they, there is cultural bias built into these uh, assessments, and we need to make sure that there's equity in terms of access to the opportunities to prepare. Uh, for these exams. Oh, I have a similar question. Um, what is your opinion on like test anxiety? Like you know, like <laughs> limits on people, limits on education going further with people not having great test scores. Mm. Great question, because there are lots of people out there with test anxiety. So let me use an analogy to make a point. In medicine. We use lots of, we get a lot of tests, right? Every time you go to the doctor, you get tests. So I have what my doctor told me is white coat, high blood pressure, right? That is whenever the guy with the white coat comes, my blood pressure goes up, right? 
So instead of saying you need medication, he said what you should do is take, get your own um, um, instrument to take your blood pressure and take it several times to see what the pattern is. And lo and behold, when I do it several times without the white coat present, I don't have high blood pressure. Right? I think similarly, there are people out there, if we see assessment as a tool, then what we want to do is look at multiple ways to assess kids. The most important way is to assess the work they produce. Right? There are a small but significant number of schools that now use performance-based assessment. So rather than a high-stakes exam, they look at a portfolio of work that a student has produced over a long period of time. And what the research shows is those kids have better outcomes than schools at traditional schools because the kids are actually prepared to do research and to write, and they take greater ownership of their work. So when we start to use assessment as a tool, as opposed to this high-stakes exam that does, I think, not only does it lead to a lot of anxiety amongst our kids, but it also has led to so much cheating. Right? Look at the, 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 the plague of cheating we've had around the country. Um, I think it comes from this misuse of the test. Um, and, but we should assess, but we should assess differently. Well, thank you for your comments. Um, as a board member for St. Luke's Foundation, I have learned the importance of addressing social determinants of health. Mm. And so as I'm listening to you, I'm hearing the same types of issues that need to be addressed in educational reform. So here's my question. How do we collaborate with all these major institutions so that we can shorten the amount of time that it would take to achieve true and sustainable success? So, great question, and we have a great model for how to do that. It's called the Harlem Children's Zone. <laughs> and the Harlem Children's Zone, Jeffrey Canada, whose work started out first in health, in mental health, not education, grew out of his recognition that we had to start early, first of all. They start at birth. They actually start before birth, right, to make sure that the moms who are pregnant in central Harlem get good prenatal care. And then they make sure that when they leave the hospital, the, the mom leaves with books as well as nutritious food and encouraged to breastfeed. And then they provide high-quality preschool. And all the way through, those kids are not only getting high-quality education, they're also getting music lessons. They're getting um, uh, their teeth examined. They're getting the full range of services to compensate for the effects of poverty. The zone can't eliminate poverty, but it can mitigate the effects. And when you mitigate the effects, what you do is you make it possible for kids to learn because other needs are being met. And they've now taken that strategy all the way through college because they start realizing just sending kids to college is not good enough because a lot of these kids get to college and they can't thrive because they've never been away from home and they're isolated. So we, and now they get those students, same students, they get them in posses, right? similar to the Posse Foundation, so they have a support system in college, bring them back to be mentors for the younger ones. So we have a model. Now, a lot of people say, well, Harm Children's Zone, they got so much money, how could we possibly replicate that? Well, we have public resources that are right now being spent poorly, right? We need to reinvest, and I, 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 ironically, I helped develop a plan for Cayuga County to do just that back in 2011. It's still available. <laughs> and from what I hear, this, uh, uh, the, the Say Yes initiative is going to be embracing this kind of work. It makes sense, but make sure when you do, or if you follow the Say Yes strategy, which I think has promise, don't overlook the schools, right? That is what they, because they tried it in Syracuse and Buffalo, it didn't work so well. They were providing all these supports outside of school. Meanwhile, the kids are getting a bad education in school. 
you've got to do both. So it's not simply about providing the services, it's also making sure kids are getting a high-quality education. But that's a strategy that can be very successful. Thank you. Hi again, Dr. Nangaro. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, impact of poverty and uh, the issue of grit and resiliency, right? Um, I know that in the state of Delaware at one point, they had put as an indicator on the school's report card a grit score. What are your feelings and thoughts about schools and what is our obligation to uh, formally teaching kids resiliency skills and grit? So this is, uh, I actually wrote an article <laughs> on that too <laughs> because I was so concerned about, because I saw schools embracing grit and then now we're gonna test for grit and even give you a grit score. First of all, the idea that you have to work hard is not a new idea, right? <laughs> right? But let's also acknowledge this. Many of the people with the most grit are still poor. Right? There are a lot of hardworking people got working two and three jobs who still can barely make ends meet. So it's not just about effort and grit to end poverty. It's about opportunity. It's about social capital. That's why when I talked about agency, our article was agency versus grit. Agency includes help-seeking behavior. Right? Do you know that you need to see your professor in office hours? Do you, know, do you have mentors? Do you have someone to write letters of recommendation? That's what middle-class kids have. It's also about collective agency, right? How teachers work together, how do they work with parents? So agency is different from grit. Grit focuses on the individual and the effort. Agency starts with critical thinking and also includes an acknowledgement that there are real barriers that we've got to overcome. Great. You talked about uh, taking kids where they're at, and oftentimes in healthcare we talk about harm reduction strategies. It's the same concept. How do we integrate that important concept into federal education healthcare reform? Um, I, I think it's vital. I agree. I don't. The politics will be a problem for right now. <laughs> Just acknowledge so much of what you know is wrong with education and with health is the politics, right? And I don't have an answer for that, right? How we get around to do what's right uh, for, for kids in health or, or for people in health or education unless we can solve the political problem. That's why I'm so happy you're on the school board. Hopefully at the local level, we can reduce some of the politics that get in the way. But I think your, your question is right. That is that we, we know, and this goes back to the question I was posed, we know that when children have three or more adverse childhood experiences, their risks go way up, right? Well, if you know that, then we gotta intervene early. We know, for example, kids who've experienced trauma, it impacts everything from attention to concentration to um, lots of things, performance in school. We also know that when teachers are trained on how to respond to trauma by building supportive relationships, we can reduce its effects. So there's a lot we know about how to address these issues, and a lot of it does come from health. But we're not deploying what we know sufficiently. And that is both a political problem, but it's also a reflection of the disconnects between schools and our healthcare system. And this is something where policymakers, I think, have to be a, do a better job, again, of, of reducing the silos and the fragmentation in the way we deliver services to people. All done? Today at the City Club, we've been hearing from Dr. Pedro Noguera, Distinguished Professor of Education and Faculty Director for the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA's Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. 
Our forum today is part of our Education Innovation Series sponsored by Nordson Corporation Foundation. It's also part of our Health Equity Series sponsored by the St. Luke's Foundation and the Sisters of Charity Foundation of Cleveland. Additional support from our program, for our program today comes from Minds Matter Cleveland. And we have representatives from all of our sponsoring agencies and organizations with us today. We appreciate your support, City Club programs. Dr. Noguera appears as part of our Authors in Conversation series, which is supported in part by residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful to all the residents of Cuyahoga County for their support through that public grant. And community partners for our program today include the Center for Education Leadership at Cleveland State University, the Greater Cleveland School Superintendents Association, and Cleveland State University's PhD in Urban Education program. We appreciate your partnership. Lastly, we welcome guests at tables hosted by the Cleveland Metro School District academic leadership team, as well as students from Shaker Heights High School, St. Martin de Porres High School, and Warrensville High School. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from the William M. Weiss Foundation with additional support from donors you'll find listed in our program today. We're happy to have all of you here. The sale of several of Dr. Noguera's books is provided by a cultural exchange. That brings us to the end of our forum today. Thank you, Dr. Noguera. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club. And with special thanks to City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. To find out more about City Club programs, go to cityclub.org. You can find everything there. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.